0: to continue this week with a series that we began last week called Benchmarks of Faith and the title of the message today is God versus me. God versus me. How do we live for God in the middle of a selfish world? What does that look like? How do we pull those things together? What are some of the qualities that, that we have that God wants to display within our lives? Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, as we approach your word this morning, We recognize that our desire to follow you is not greater than your desire to have us follow you. You are the enabler. You are the one that brings to us everything that we need to live a life of godliness and holiness, and I pray that we would be open to you as you work within us today. Father, in those areas of our life where we seem to be in competition with you, I pray that you would make those clear and that you would make pathways for us to grow in you clear as well, and we pray this... In Jesus' name, amen. I remember the occasion vividly. Cindy and I had entered into the Baldwinsville High School gymnasium because we were going to be sitting among the parents of those who would be watching our sons wrestle that night. That night it was the first wrestling match of the year in Baldwinsville where my children attended school was wrestling Liverpool. My son was a freshman in high school and had been told that week that he would be wrestling varsity for the first match of the year that night. And since he had been wrestling, since he was in second grade, being at a wrestling match was not unusual. But walking into a gymnasium between Liverpool and Baldwinsville, recognizing the, the rivalry and the people that were there, there was a different level of excitement than we had been accustomed to. Now, I am one of those dads <laughs> that would sit right on the front row with a videotape. They used to be big. Then they got smaller, and I would videotape every one of Keith's matches from the time that he was in second grade when he started wrestling, and we would review those at the end, win or loss, we went through them trying to figure out how can we do, what can we do to get better, and and so I had gotten there early enough that I could get a front row seat because when it started, I didn't want anybody walking in front of me. So I would slide up right next to the mat and and would begin to provide commentary for the match into the videotape as we were going. I'm not ashamed of that. And as had been the tradition when the referee called them together, they shook hands, and when he blew his whistle, I would always scream out, let's go, Keith! He needed to know I was there. As the match went on, I was growing. By the way, how many of you know that parents can get more nervous than kids? Have you, have you discovered that? You know, I, I had wrestled for a number of years, and I was used to that moment when the whistle blew, the, the fear went away, and it was time to get. Being a parent, the fear never goes away. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm screaming, and I'm hollering, and at one point during the match, he, he was able to get a hold of his opponent and flip him in the air and drop him to his back, and, and I start screaming at him, and it's in slow motion in my mind as the referee falls on the mat and begins to go, what? I'm going, hurry, three, and he slaps the mat, indicating that Keith had pinned his opponent and had won a varsity match, and I screamed, yes, don't act like you've never done that. I remember feeling the same way when my daughter, Kara, my son was an athlete, my daughter was a very smart student, and when she has was walking across the stage with her gold cords, receiving a postgraduate degree from an Ivy League university, and I screamed out, Yes! in that crowd. What I did not understand at that time is the power of pride and the tears that would come to my face in those moments. How deeply it affected me. And I began to realize it is possible to take such delight... And be so incredibly pleased by seeing somebody else succeed that you love. That it really brings you to an emotional place. And I've thought about that a number of times through the years. And I've often considered it since. That if I, as an earthly father, could have that sensation of pleasure and well-being in the accomplishments of my son and my daughter surely that must give us an inkling, just an inkling of what it is like for the heavenly father when you do something that brings pleasure to him. Again, we've got this image so many people in our world that there's this God that's just waiting for you to do something wrong, but I I want you to picture a God that's just waiting for you to do something right so he can scream out your name and go, yes, because he's videotaping everything. When you begin to think of God being so pleased with your accomplishments and, and you become grasped by that and you grasp it, it will revolutionize your life. It will revolutionize the way we need to be and, and living in a time and in a culture where pleasing ourselves is the statement of faith of our culture. Our culture is living in a, the only thing that matters is that I get what's mine. I'm number one. I deserve this. Me, me. And, and living in that versus, me versus God society, we constantly battle these things. The Apostle Paul was describing to Timothy, he says, there is an essential problem that will be seen in the last days. And we find in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, if you have your Bibles, I would like to turn to that. He says, but mark this, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and he continues on with this list. Paul states prophetically, that in the last days, there are going to be terrible times. And then he begins to give us a list of exactly what it is that's going to cause them to be terrible. And he starts with this. People will be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. In other words, in it's you versus God. God ends up losing so many different times because we choose ourselves over what he desires. And he says the qualities that you can begin to recognize, whether it be in you or in the society around you, is first of all, people will love money more than anything else. They're going to want to try to provide for themselves and do everything they can do to pursue the almighty dollar. Beyond that, they begin to brag about themselves. All they can talk about is themselves. They just want to build themselves up to everybody that's around. And ultimately, that leads them to a place of pride where they look at me, look at my accomplishments, look at what I have done, and as a result of that, it pursues their heart right into a level of arrogance where they no longer are capable of being team players and the people around them don't matter, just me. And then from there, that grows into an abusive behavior in the way that you treat others because if you can't value those around you, if you're the only one that matters, then it doesn't matter how you treat everybody else. And so abuse naturally follows after that. He says, and then in the last days you'll know you're in trouble when children begin to think that they know more than their parents. They begin to argue on every detail, close their door and think to themselves, my mom and dad don't know what they're talking about and become disobedient because they begin to think that they are entitled to everything and they've lost the ability to be thankful. They feel that everything is owed to them and that part of the generation and part of the world in which we live. And he classifies all of this as a self-love. He said, all of this happens because in your battle against God, these are the things that happen when terrible conditions arise, when people no longer pursue what God wants in their lives. Lewis Bailey, a 17th century bishop and was a chaplain to the king of England, wrote a book that was called The Practice of Piety, directing a Christian how to walk that he may please God. And I'm going to read this not in the way that it was written, but in the way that it makes sense to us within our English language. He said, if we're going to discover what it means to please God, we must come to a knowledge of God's majesty and man's misery. In doing so, we become conscious of our sin. Only when we acknowledge the gravity of our terminal condition that the Bible calls sin will we understand our need of a Savior. We will never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a reality until we first see Him as a necessity. It's only when we who are by nature objects of God's wrath might be declared righteous in His sight and come to understand that, that we can pursue Him in a right place. The Apostle Paul describes this transaction as this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you've been saved. In other words, he says, "It, it is It is by the graceful nature of God that he did not give us what we deserve. It is entirely out of a loving heart of God that says, I know you've blown it, but I'm going to make a way for you, and I offer you something that you cannot earn. For it is by grace that you have been saved, and you receive it through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that never will you be able to boast that you earned it. Brings us into a place of humility. And the next verse, Paul declares that having been saved, there is now a pathway that you begin to proceed on to discover and do the good works which God prepared for you in advance to do. In other words, I give you salvation as a gift You receive it by faith, and having done so, there now is a lifestyle and a plan of which to follow to do the good works that bring glory to me so I can cheer you on from heaven. I love the fact that it's not that we are left alone trying to find some way to please the demanding Father, but the Heavenly Father enables us to seek Him and to do what pleases Him, and He loves it and cheers for us when we do well what a great heavenly father our heavenly father chooses to take pleasure in our approaches and our achievements no matter how minor or insignificant they may appear to others some of you may remember the movie the chariots of fire there's a a memorable scene that involves eric liddell and his sister jenny and and she in this scene is kind of chiding him and, and kind of getting after him because she rev- was looking at his life and, and fearing that he had divided loyalties between athletics and his commitment to Christ. And she reminds him that God has made you for himself. And Eric replied, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that aspect that God has created each of us and each of us with different gifts and talents and that when we are involved in those, I feel His pleasure in all of this. Now, I look at around this sanctuary this morning and it is obvious that for most of us, athletics is not going to be what God is going to be cheering us on in. And so it very well may be that what God takes pleasure in your life doing might be that you are just a great accountant as you're diving into your taxes and you're doing it with all of your heart God takes pleasure at your abilities maybe it's because you're a health caregiver and as you are working so very hard God is taking pleasure in what you're doing maybe you're a great salesman or maybe you're a teacher or maybe you're a stay-at-home mother or father And while you are making the lunches of your child, God is taking pleasure that what you are doing, you're doing to the best of your ability, and he's cheering you on because he's proud of you at whatever level you are. The psalmist reminds us that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and put their hope in his unfailing love. I believe that we make a great mistake in our life if we try to compartmentalize compartmentalize our life into boxes of these things are spiritual and these things are secular. That I can live a spiritual life on certain days and I can do this and this falls into my spiritual box and then when I'm no longer in the church or no longer around other Christians, I can have a secular box. God is trying to indicate to us that our life, once it belongs to Him, everything is spiritual. Everything that we do is birthed out of our spiritual desire to follow Him. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul tells us that we need to make it our goal. Remember last week we talked about focus, steadfastness, turning our attention to make sure that we're doing what we need to do, that we need to focus on pleasing him. So over these next few weeks, we're going to be holding our life up to the word of God, saying, Lord, here I am. What do I need to measure myself at as I'm growing in you so that I can please you? When I traveled as a child, my mom and dad would oftentimes stop at the grocery store and we would, we would buy those little, they, you know, they had eight different types of cereal in them. They were all kind of single servings. Many of you are, not, I was the oldest and the strongest in my family. So I always ended up with the Apple Jacks and uh, uh, the Cocoa Krispies, leaving for my sisters the healthy food like raisin bran and shredded wheat. Uh, they, they really needed that. And, and so, oftentimes I've discovered that we kind of approach our walk with God in that way. We look at the Word of God and say, you know, here's, here's what I, I want to do. I would like to take these promises out of the box, and I'd like to apply these to my life, but then there's some other stuff in there that looks like shredded wheat, that really the taste of that is not going to be as good, and so I'm going to leave that for somebody else. And, and honestly, as we approach the Word, we, we have to discover that there's a, an entire menu that we need in order to be healthy. In the Lord, not just the sweet things, but sometimes the healthy things. Jesus declares to his father in prayer, I always do what pleases him, and we need to have that same prayer. So there are are four things that I quickly want to highlight this morning that will be a part of your life as we are growing in the Lord. And the first one of those is fruitful living. If we desire to pursue after Christ, one of the things that will happen is that we will be fruitful in our life. There's a radical transformation that takes place when we know Jesus. And it moves us from where we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And we were made alive in Christ. And before we came to know him, our life was marked by fruitless deeds. We were active. Our schedules were full. There were a lot of things that we were involved in. None of them, however, had any eternal or lasting effect that was built around what pleases me and what do I want to do. In fact, if you were to find a book with a title that says, How to Improve Your Christianity, I would be skeptical because living as a Christian is not a matter of ability or technique, although practice does help. It's a matter of who you're in relationship with. The key to being fruitful in your life as you follow Christ is Who are you connected with? In fact, if you turn, please, to John chapter 15. I want to read the first five verses of that. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you, so remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you're not going to do anything. One of the interesting things about this is that there are levels of fruitfulness that we are satisfied with says that he cuts off branches that are unfruitful. He's, he's pruning the tree. Things that are dead need to be cut away. But then he talks about those aspects of our life that we are fruitful in. And do you notice that he doesn't leave those alone? It says that he prunes them. Now, now we would look at that and say, I'm doing good in that area. And he goes, but only I know what you're capable of. And so there's things in your life that are going to begin to prune from the most fruitful areas because what's going to happen after that is as you yield to me, your fruitfulness will explode in greater ways than you ever dreamed or imagined because I am the gardener and you've allowed me to have this access to you. So when Jesus tells his followers that he is the true vine, he begins to understand that in relationship with him, what flows through our veins is that which he produces and not ourselves. And then what comes out of our life is that which he produces as well. So if you find in your heart and mind today that there are aspects of your life that as you look at it and you yield them to the Lord and say, Lord, as I'm growing in you, would you prune these things in me? Then understand that sometimes pruning is painful. But it always produces more than what you thought. Because God is a great harvester. If there's aspects of your life that are not producing fruit when you ask him to have availability to your life, he may very well trim those from you completely. But when you're in a thriving relationship with Jesus, you are eager to do what is good and you will devote yourself to it because you're tied in and what you're producing is glory for him. And he becomes proud of the accomplishments of what is produced in your life. Alistair Begg states this. Although the gospel is theological in its foundation, it is ethical and behavioral in its implications. In other words, it's one thing for us to say, this is what I believe, this is what the Bible teaches, this is my theological stance of which I will stand. It's another thing to take that and say, now I need that applied in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit so that I begin to resemble what I believe. And in my life as I'm resembling this, Lord, let my behavior be such that brings you glory because I am tapped into the vine, and I want my life to resemble yours more and more. So the fruit produced in our lives is not by human endeavor, but by connection with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in our life as we're pursuing him, we are instructed to have knowledgeable living. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, and I'm going to read this from the New King James Version because I like the way that it words it that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. That I could preach a whole sermon on what fully pleasing Him because when we look into the mirror of Scripture from time to time, we can feel so overwhelmed with guilt that we can never attain something that sometimes we quit trying. But when this becomes our aim and we're tapped into the Holy Spirit, then we grow in the knowledge. So fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing... In the knowledge of God. Interesting enough here is Paul was speaking to people that were really in a clash of worldviews. And in this passage, he's, he's speaking to a, a Greek colony at Colossus, in, which would be modern day Turkey. And many of these believers had come from pagan backgrounds and they did not have a biblical or or an Old Testament understanding of what was going on there. They'd never heard the stories of God's providence through saving Israel and they hadn't been raised on the Ten Commandments and hadn't been guided by the words of the prophets. They were not taught to pray the Psalms. And so as they entered into relationship with the Lord, they were trying to begin to blend their pagan background with their new Christian life trying to pick the best of all of these things. And so their outcome on life, with what they considered important, what was expected of them was a blend of worldviews. At that time when they'd grown up, they believed in gods and goddesses, and these deities couldn't be trusted because they rarely act on the behalf of humanity at all. In fact, they were terrible gods. They were reflections of the Greeks themselves. They were kind of embodiments of self-worship and the idols that they had worshipped. They had created to validate their own selfish desires. And in the middle of this, Christ steps in. And as he steps in, he declares that he will be Lord of all and Lord over all. And so they begin to find in this clash of cultures, how then do I cut away those things which I may have grown up with so that I can pursue that which I know in my heart is real and alive to me? And as I was reading about that, I began to think, does that not sound like our culture today? Are we not in a place where people are trying to mix the best of the world with the best of Christianity and formulate their own theology that they can say, this is what I believe, this is the way I live because this is the way that feels right to me. And in the middle of that, they will argue with you as to why they don't have to obey all of the word of God. In fact, it tells us that the scripture warns us of the signs of the times in the last days. It says, number one people will find teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. 2 Timothy 3, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, says this in the New King James. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, people will get mad when they are convicted of the Holy Spirit. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves. In other words, I'm going to build a coalition of people that believe just like I do, and if I get enough of them, we must be right because it's me versus God. And they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will be turned aside to fables. We in humanity are not the creators of truth. God alone is. Signs of the times in the last days. Also, there's going to be an increase in martyrdom. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I was reading an article from Voice of the Martyrs and researchers have discovered that the number of Christians around the world that were martyred between the year 2010 and 2020 was well over one million people. It works out that 100,000 people are martyred every year. And in last 10 years, in that single decade, more martyrs for the cause of Christ took place than the previous 2,000 years put together. The signs of the times. He said there's going to be an increase in lawlessness. The latest news is that in one of our cities, there's been 500 homicides, and they're not even halfway through the year yet. He says, lawlessness will increase, and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Last week, Cindy and I were in Baltimore because we were attending the surgery of a couple of our nephews, and the family that was there, my brother-in-law and and sister-in-law and the boys stayed at the Ronald McDonald house, which was five blocks away from the hospital, and when they got there, they were told, you cannot walk from here to the hospital. It doesn't matter if it's the daytime or the nighttime or if you all together in a group. It is so dangerous here that you cannot walk those five blocks. And so they had to take an Uber back and forth to the hospital. Gone are the days when you could take a walk in any place in any city at night. We live in a society today where there are places that police hesitate to go. And it's in this twisted sense of morality. And God versus me... Way of life that Paul is seeking to correct in his letter to the Colossians. And and he's saying, You cannot add elements of your old pagan ideas into the Word of God. You must choose this day whom you will follow, this day whom you will serve. And we who are followers of Jesus Christ declare to Him, You are our only hope. And so as we focus on growing in the knowledge of God, what that means to us is that it will be fostered, number one, and I'm saying this to you who are here today, it's fostered because you care enough to come and be taught by preaching the Word of God. There are things that we pray every week, regardless of whether it's me or another one of our pastors, that there will be something deposited into your spirit that will give you something to hang on to for the week. Something that will bring life to you. Something that will nourish your soul because these are not wasted minutes, these are eating minutes for us spiritually. We also pray that you will engage with God in conversation, that there would be an emphasis on prayer within our lives. That's why we have prayer meetings, that's why we gather together, that's why we pray for you at the front. There's a connection that takes place when we're talking to God. We know likewise that we need to spend time in his company, a need for devotional time. That's why we as a church, corporately, are going through the Bible daily together so that we can ingest what God wants us to know and daily grow in the things of the Lord as we do this together. And then we know that in our desire to be more like Him, that it's important that we gather together in times like this to worship. I've had somebody once tell me, it's not important whether I'm there or not. I said, really? You don't know the joy it is for other people to see you in the house of the Lord. There's nobody that can worship God in the house of the Lord for you. Your presence is important. So whenever you get up on a Sunday morning and begin to think about all of the other things that you can do, I want to remind you, your presence here is important, not just to you, but to other people who are encouraged because you're faithful. It's important as we begin to look to grow in the knowledge of God that is progressive and dynamic. Thirdly, there's a powerful living that comes to those who are pursuing Christ. If we are to please God in every way, then we need to have a power that is beyond ourselves. We need divine resources to meet the demands of Christian service and Christian life. And let me add this, especially as our culture gets to a place where we as believers will be persecuted more and more. I always find it interesting of people that would tell me, you know what, I'm going to live the way I want to live and then just before I die, I'm going to, jump in and commit my life to God that way I get to go to heaven and I've had all the fun in the world or I've even had people tell me you know what I you know if I miss the rapture I'm just going to go ahead I'm not going to take the mark of the beast and and I'll just let them cut my head off and I'll end up let me tell you something if you can't do it when the Holy Spirit's alive and well now what what makes you think for a second that when the Spirit of the Lord has been removed You do not have the willpower enough. It requires the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring to us a power for living. You see, there's no level of aspiration or perspiration or determination that will be adequate for the challenge. What is required is the inspiration, the in-breathing from power of God through the Holy Spirit that resides within us, that gives us the ability to do what God asks of us to do. And this divine enabling is present and it's a continuous experience in fact the biblical picture is steady consistent endowment of power that's sufficient for the journey that you are on day by day Zechariah 4 6 tells us it's not by might it's not by power it is by my spirit saith the Lord Almighty and sometimes what confuses us and this is especially important to us in Pentecostal circles but What confuses us is that we assume that the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives will always be demonstrated by some bombastic explosion or public gift. And we think that if it is not loud and if it's not observable and if it's not seen, then the Holy Spirit is not at work within our life. But let me tell you something. The power of the Holy Spirit is just as strong and evident in the spirit-filled believer who is going about their business, pleasing God day-to-day, quietly, faithfully doing exactly what God wants you to do. It's just as powerful in you as if you were there caring for people who perhaps it's loved ones whose needs are failing, and day by day you were there, and day by day you were faithful. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that helps you to continue. His power is displayed in the fortitude of those who endure the pain of a progressive illness without succumbing to the temptation to be bitter and resentful. And His power, as we understand it, flows through individuals who desire every day, God, grant me the power necessary to endure with patience everything that is placed before me. The power of the Holy Spirit flowing through the lives of His believers is there to make sure that day to day your spiritual engine starts and can move forward with the power of the Lord. And lastly, as you're pursuing God, you're going to discover that you have thankful living. God is pleased when all of our days and all of our duties are marked by gratitude. In like fact, one of the distinguishing marks of the last days is that men and, will, men and women will be without gratitude. I have seen it so many times, you know, somebody opens a door for somebody else, they don't even say thank you. I was going to say something about driving, but I would just convict myself. We'll just move on. <laughs> we begin to take for granted. And assume that God owes us something. That we have the right to something. And in the midst of our cultural setting. The Lord says those who are thankful. Those of you who make it a practice. To just be thankful. What you will begin to do. Is you will shine like a light in the darkness. And Do you know that you can bless people's hearts by just saying thank you? When I was in the pediatric emergency room. Uh, a week ago. I was looking at a young pediatrician, a young lady, that I had seen her running up and down the halls. They had children laying in gurneys in the middle of the hall. They had opened up an extra room. There were so many kids in there. And when she came by and and was speaking to uh, the Vargas's about Judah, I said, Are you okay? Can I just thank you for caring? And she stopped and she goes, Nobody ever says that. I believe that as we're growing in the Lord, one of the things that will help mark us different than everybody else is we will be thankful. We'll live in an atmosphere of being thankful. It's one of the benchmarks of our faith as we grow in an unfading awareness that God's mercy allows us to grow in the fruit of thankfulness that we see things differently than those that are without thankfulness do. I'm going to ask our worship team if they'd please come and prepare themselves. All of our desires and all of our decisions, and all of our aspirations, and all of our affections should be governed by the determination that I will please God. I will please you, Lord. And it's distinct from just superficial interest in religious things. Just attending church is not going to please God. There's an attitude and a life and a lifestyle of obedience to his word that he's going to hold up. And when you do, you will hear the applause of heaven as tears run down his face as he cheers for you. And he's so proud of you, tapping into everything that he has given for you. So in this God versus me contest that you're in, you must determine who's going to win and who's going to yield? how many of you are campers? how many of you have ever put up a tent? several of you you know you pull that thing out of the bag and they used to be made of heavy canvas now they're really light nylon and the first thing that you do when you pull that out if you have any experience is you don't immediately start looking for the poles to put it up you look for the stakes And you spread it out on the ground and you take a stake to the one corner and you stake it in tight and then you pull the other corner and you make it tight and you drive that stake in the ground. And you do that on all four corners because you know you can't put a structure in place until you have stakes driven in the ground that these are places we will not move from. These points that we had today of fruitful living and knowledgeable living and powerful living and thankful living, these are the stakes by which we drive them in the ground and say this is how I will live. I'm going to pursue God with all of these things so that the structure that He begins to place into my life will have support. And the interesting thing is is He's not building you all to look alike. There's no cookie-cutter neighborhoods as He builds Christians. You're going to look differently. The structures will look differently. But the stakes are the same, driven firmly into the ground, that I will trust in Him and I will pursue Him with my heart.